Welcome to the podcast of the University of Massachusetts Amherst History Department's 2016-2017 Feinberg Family Distinguished Lecture Series entitled The U.S. in the Age of Mass Incarceration. Today, November 15, 2016, we broadcast a lecture by award-winning historian Jen Mannion entitled Historicizing the Carceral State, Race, Sex, and Power in Early America. Thank you for listening. But good evening. <laughs> Um, I'm Brian Ogilvie, the chair of the history department here at UMass Amherst. Uh, and uh, this evening, it's my privilege to welcome you to the penultimate event this semester uh, of our Feinberg family lecture series on mass incarceration. Um, uh, we have uh, 14 events that were sponsored or co-sponsored by this series uh, in the fall. Um, after this, there's one more remaining. But there are some events coming up in the spring. Uh, if you haven't had uh, enough um, uh, and are uh, looking for uh, more events, uh, including uh, uh, an art exhibit uh, that is connected with the series. Um, tonight, uh, we are going to be hearing a, a lecture on historicizing the carceral, carceral state, race, sex, and power in early America by Professor Jen Mannion uh, of Amherst College. Uh, so my job is not to introduce uh, Professor Mannion, but rather to say a little bit about the uh, series uh, and then uh, introduce uh, the person who will introduce her. Um, every other year, the History Department organizes this endowed lecture series around a topic at the intersection of history and public policy. The inaugural series commemorated the 50th anniversary of the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas decision. Uh, and most recently, two years ago, we explored immigration and migration in the Americas. Each year, the series features a wide range of events, uh, from lectures and exhibitions to performances, panel discussions, and films. Uh, these offerings are carried out uh, in cooperation uh, with other departments and programs uh, across our campus and the five colleges. This year, we're especially pleased to have arranged a number of events with partners in the community uh, who are identified in your program, so please take a look. The Feinberg semester activities are possible only because of the generosity of Mr. Kenneth R. Feinberg, a 1967 alumnus of the UMass History Department, together with his family and friends. Uh, Mr. Feinberg completed his BA in history and went on to a distinguished career in law and public service. Uh, there's a brief biography in your program. Uh, most notably, Ken served as special master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. In a talk on this campus, Mr. Feinberg articulated his conviction that the study of history is instrumental in understanding and analyzing contemporary events. Uh, we in the history department could not agree more. The current Feinberg series was planned by the UMass Amherst History Department in consultation with both community members and uh, faculty around the five colleges. Uh, let me thank the members of the advisory board, some of whom are here, all of whom are listed in your program, uh, for their dedication to this effort. Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the tireless labor of the History Department staff and students who have kept the program running smoothly. Let me invite you now to the next event in the series, uh, the last uh, for this fall, uh, but like I said, more will be coming in the spring, uh, a panel discussion on the collateral consequences of a criminal record with Veronica McNair, Elaine Arsenault, Donald Perry, and Jaffet Robles. That will be held uh, on Tuesday, November 29th, uh, two weeks from today, at 6 p.m., not 5, uh, here in this very room, uh, Herder Hall, room 601. Let me also invite you to participate in the series social media. There's a Facebook page, and our Twitter hashtag uh, is hash Feinberg series. Uh, and now uh, let me introduce my colleague, Professor Marla Miller, uh, who will introduce tonight's speaker. Hey, everybody. Um, first, before I do introduce tonight's speaker, 
Um, I think we have a chair seat here, yeah? There's a seat here and seat there. So two open seats if anyone wants to get off the windowsill. You guys good? You have to be front row sitters, but it's a chair. <laughs> All right, um, so if somebody comes in, please wave them into a, to a seat. Um, and I also want to add, there's, we've added one more event to the Feinberg series. On Wednesday, November 30th, um, there'll be an informational workshop and Know Your Rights session for and I'm, immigrant students and their allies. That's correct. Um, so let me say that again. Wednesday, November 30th, an informational workshop and Know Your Rights session for immigrant students and their allies. So you might want to make a note of that. Uh, so tonight, I'm thrilled to welcome to Herder Hall and to the Five College community, uh, Jen Mannion, who recently joined the faculty at Amherst College, just down the road from us in the history department, where she teaches courses in early America, the history of gender and sexuality, and U.S. carceral culture. Her Twitter handle is act activist history, for those of you who are going to be tweeting from tonight's event, if that's okay. Um, and again, the hashtag for the series is hashtag Feinberg series. Jen's book, Liberty's Prisoners, Carceral Culture in Early America, came out in 2015 from Penn Press and was awarded the 2016 Mary Kelly Prize by the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic, awarded to the best book published in the history of women, gender, and sexuality in the early American Republic. And I think there are copies of that uh, for if, if you would like to purchase a copy after tonight's talk, Jen has a couple with her, so um, thank you for bringing those. And I was going to bring my copy, and now, of course, I couldn't find it, but I did bring another title. Long-term fans of Jen Mannion's work, like myself, also appreciate this 2004 book, which will be of interest to people in this room, um, Taking Back the Academy, The History of Activism and History as Activism. So let me draw your attention to that. Um, so with no further ado, uh, help me welcome Jen Mannion, who will speak tonight on Historicizing the Cultural Carceral State. Thank you so much for that introduction, Marla, and the invitation. Um, I'm really honored to be a part of this series and also to Jessica for your support um, with organizing logistics leading up uh, to this day and to everyone for coming out um, on this cold, dark evening for so many reasons, not just the weather. Um, it feels daunting to me to be publicly speaking at this moment. My heart is heavy and I still have a knot in my stomach uh, a person who promotes racist, anti-Semitic, misogynist, and fascist values will assume the presidency of the United States in our lifetimes. Like most of us, I didn't see it coming. I believe that we were moving in the opposite direction toward a broader embrace of respect for all human beings, not just in spite of, but also because of our differences. Social justice educators, activists, lawyers, and even some politicians Many of us in this room also have had many successes in the past 40 years, dismantling structural oppressions, large and small, improving access, equality, and inclusion in many areas of life, not the least of which is higher education, certainly for myself. This is a terrible time, and it seems pretty clear already that some of the harms done will be irreparable, especially to immigrant communities, people of color communities, LGBT communities, and not to mention democracy itself, as the incoming administration has made clear that it has little regard for due process, freedom of the press, or freedom of religion, just to name a few. But most of us, <laughs> I'm imagining in this room, I know myself, already know what it's like to be targeted, harassed, marginalized, bullied, and denied rights and freedoms taken for granted by others. 
For us, the fight is not new, but suddenly it feels bigger and more urgent. And I do believe that we, and not just we, but we, are going to unite and organize to resist this dangerous, fascist, racist takeover of the US government. One of the reasons I believe in the powerful potential for a remobilized left is because of my research on the origins of the penitentiary system in the United States. The prison industrial complex as we know it has blossomed under Democratic and Republican administrations alike. While Trump has promised a series of horrifying measures that will strengthen the carceral state, there was little evidence that Clinton would have overseen the vast overhaul of the criminal justice system that we needed in order to put an end to the human rights crisis of mass incarceration. The core principle of the penal system that persists in the present was actually woven into the fabric of our democracy at the moment of the nation's founding. The denial of freedom. The denial of freedom was the worst thing that one could do to a person in a freedom-loving country. This was declared with no irony, even though three quarters of a million people were enslaved. This principle was applied to the population in uneven and very particular ways, depending on one's race, gender, class, age, and status as enslaved, bound, indentured, or free. The practices that established carceral culture in this period include discretionary use of vagrancy charges to imprison people and reestablish social order, burdening the poorest of people with financing the entire system through fines and fees. I'm hoping some of these things sound familiar. Punishing women for asserting a place for themselves in the public sphere through economic and social activities thought to belong to men alone. Criminalizing African-American women and men at the moment when slavery was abolished and freedom obtainable. All of these things were done in the name of democracy and political liberalism with a callousness about the circumstances that compelled some people to challenge authority and violate laws and an indifference to the impact imprisonment would have on families, communities, or the very principles of democracy itself. For example, when her husband Daniel died, Mary Meredith struggled to maintain her authority over Dinah, the enslaved woman who lived in her home. In 1790, Dinah was charged with, quote, being idle, disorderly, and disobedient towards her mistress, Mary Meredith, to be kept at labor 30 days in Philadelphia's Walnut Street prison. Dinah was released after just two weeks, signaling that Mary couldn't live without her help any longer and hoped that two weeks in jail would put Dinah in her place. Mistresses constantly ordered, monitored, and disciplined their servants and slaves, turning to the state for help when their authority was challenged. While white men would often be away from home, working, conducting business, meeting with friends or visiting coffee houses, it was white women who worked closely with servants and slaves in accomplishing domestic tasks day in and day out. Dinah was one of countless enslaved African Americans who together with indentured servants and domestic workers of African, Irish, and English descent all clamored for freedom following the American Revolution. They challenged the abuse and authority of masters and mistresses. They came together to share frustrations, aspirations, and community. They ran away, disobeyed orders, and stole from the homes of their employers. 
They denied their labor to those who felt entitled to it by custom and by law. Seeking their own piece of the revolution's promise, this group challenged long-standing economic and social hierarchies, and many of them were in prison for their actions. In America, white women and black women have never been natural allies. We know definitively that the penitentiary is and was a powerful tool of social and individual manipulation. Its origins in the post-revolutionary era, 1780s and 90s, were no coincidence. Democracy required the right kind of punishment. Its promise of freedom and justice made the denial of liberty the perfect punishment. The system was designed with an eye to democracy's ideal liberal subject, white men. And these quotes are from Benjamin Rush, who was a Philadelphia-based doctor uh, and reformer and one of the lead architects of the system. This imagined white male prisoner would no longer be publicly beaten, humiliated, and berated, but instead would sit alone in a prison cell, isolated from negative social influences, and subject to a daily routine of basic meals, solitary reflection, and Bible study. If properly administered, punishment would reform him to resume his place in society as an able worker, reliable provider, and engaged citizen, or so prison reformers hoped. Given that this idea served as the basis of the penitentiary, which remains the premier form of punishment in the United States over 200 years later, my research asks a simple question. What was the purpose of punishment for everyone else? When the war with Great Britain finally came to an end, Pennsylvania's legislature joined with Quaker reformers to overhaul the state's penal code to reduce the number of capital crimes and put an end to harsh punishment. The move to make punishment humane, rational, and nonviolent was inspired by two key and equally compelling forces, enlightenment theories of justice and what we might call the birth of American exceptionalism. Elites considered the British penal code overly severe, a relic of medieval times, and representative of all that was wrong with Europe. The new system of punishment eschewed outright violence, no more whippings, branding, stocks, or pillories, in favor of a term of con containment and penance. In 1790, and Pennsylvania was the first state to do this, and many quickly followed thereafter, Punishment became defined by a singular experience, the denial of freedom. And this is just to give you a sense of space. Uh, obviously, you can't read the detail, but it's a map of Philadelphia in 1796 uh, with most of the businesses and houses clustered along the waterfront. And here, this is just a zoom in to show you the proximity of the State House, which is uh, signaled with a pink arrow to the what is here called the Goal for Felons, and it becomes the first state penitentiary uh, in the country. They're like a block away from each other. And that's where the Constitutional Convention happened. It's like one block away from the first uh, penitentiary. The revolutionary promises, life, liberty, and happiness, were quickly foreclosed for many by this revised penal system that disguised its violence under the rubric of humanitarianism, replaced slavery as the disciplinary authority in African-American lives, 
and prized the property rights of the few over the human rights of the many. Under the newly democratic government, however, more white men than ever before gained importance in the body politic. This diverse class of white men, from ruling elites to middling artisans, cast their lot with the penitentiary system, hoping that it would make them better men, bring back gender roles of old, cultivate industrious habits, contain the threat of free blacks and immigrants, and regulate illicit sex. It was a tall order, made more challenging by the resistance of the lower class white men who worked as watchmen, keepers, and guards, and refused their orders. African Americans who fought back against unjust laws and the people who claimed possession of them. Irish immigrants who stole items of small value to survive while serving out or abandoning their indentures and working women who refused to give up their jobs and retreat from public life into the domestic fantasy of republicanism. When economic depression struck and crime rates spiked, the underclasses seemed more threatening than ever before. <coughs> Elites did not stand idly by, but rather invoked the authority of enlightened justice to reassert hierarchy and order. And I'm gonna tell you an example. In 1799, 20, when 28-year-old Mary O'Brien stole a plated lamp and two tablecloths from Edward Shippen's home on 4th Street, she inspired outrage among Philadelphia's elites. Shippen was a noted judge of common pleas who, who lived there with his family and two people who were enslaved. He was a member of one of the richest families in Pennsylvania. His namesake and great-grandfather Edward Shippen stood at the top of Pennsylvania society during the early years of settlement, served on the high court, and possessed the greatest fortune in the colony at the time. As part of the wealthy and powerful shipping clan, Edward, of course, could have done without the tablecloths. But O'Brien's bold act showed that she did not respect his authority and did not fear the repercussions of the newly strengthened penal system that was extremely harsh toward thieves. As a lawyer and judge himself, Shippen embodied penal authority. O'Brien, an Irish immigrant who worked as a servant, received a two-year sentence, which was extreme even for Pennsylvania, though she did receive a pardon after serving one year and eight months. <coughs> and this is just a breakdown of the occupation when it was available in the records of women who were convicted of uh, serious crimes that were punishable by one year or more. And you see the overwhelming majority of them are servants. The tense relationship between elite whites and poor women of African, Irish, and even English descent was visible in private homes, on the streets, in jails, courthouses, and the press. Elite women commented on the habits of servants leaving home early in the evening to spend the night out on the town with family and friends, drinking, socializing, and carousing into the morning hours. Women working in occupations that provided them with some greater degree of financial independence were rarely charged or convicted of theft, and some of these occupations include grocer, milliner, baker, boarding house operator, schoolmistress, tavern keeper, and mantua maker. So a couple of those that I just listed are on here, but very few. <laughs> Many women simply were not paid enough to make ends meet and resorted to theft to supplement their subsistence through a variety of tasks in the informal economy, 
including stealing, storing, or selling stolen property. Servants earned about a dollar a week if they were lucky. Seamstresses earned slightly more, but still struggled to feed themselves after paying for rent, which was usually about half of their earnings and fuel. Larceny was by far the most common crime, which is petty theft, for which women were convicted and sentenced to a term in the penitentiary. From 1795 to 1810, 357 women were convicted of larceny, while the total number convicted of other crimes combined was only 95. The women who were most likely to be convicted of larceny worked as servants. Servants often stocked up on clothing and other valuables when planning to run away. Clothing was a valuable asset in terms of both monetary worth and social significance. A servant might gain a nice outfit for Sunday night in the town or Sunday, Saturday night in the town, Sunday morning services, pawn it for some much needed money, or use it to start a new life that did not reveal their former status. Women in the streets were especially vulnerable if they were drinking, making noise, without men, without proof of a formal occupation, homeless, visibly impoverished, or quite simply, black. The excessive enforcement, and oh, and this is just, this is just an image, um, it's just an image of people drinking, uh, and, and the different gendered, it's, it's organized by gender, and there are different social significance attributed to men and women's drinking. A, a detail I won't get into, but we could talk about it if you're interested. The excessive enforcement of vagrancy laws reflected both local and national values. Constables and watchmen filled the prison with these disorderly women to get them off the streets. Even though this overwhelmed the prison and outraged reformers, because they claimed that it worked against their aims, which was penal reform. The policing of women in public spaces reveals numerous contradictions in early Republican life and thought. First, it exposes the conflicts between the principle of enlightened justice espoused by reformers and the everyday actions and decisions of the watchmen who were charged with policing the street. Second, it shows that working poor women were creative economic actors in the marketplace well into the antebellum period, just as elites feared, because their survival depended on it. They turned to the streets for food, drink, fun, companionship, alms, and opportunities. The expansive policing of women's public activities was done in the name of order and national identity, but actually weakened already tenuous ties to economic survival, because even a 30-day prison term could throw women's life into disarray especially, and, and that was the common term, uh, making her unable to do her job, which would unlikely be waiting for her upon her release. So, so many um, uh, people were arrested um, for being out late, for screaming, for cursing, for drinking, uh, potentially for soliciting sex, and they would just, without tr no cause, no trial, just get imprisoned for 30 days under vagrancy charges. And then a lot of those people end up in the almshouse later and you can imagine because they were not able to do the laundry that they were supposed to be doing they weren't able to show up at their work and so this the disruption the the, the profound effect that a short-term imprisonment on a superfluous charge could destroy someone's life just like this the idea that women and men occupied quote separate spheres was promoted in the 19th century as a way to challenge the presence of women in public life Women were to be relegated to the domestic sphere, while men occupied and dictated public life. 
Women's historians have debated the actual relevance of this concept for decades, chiefly whether or not and in what ways it was expected among working poor, urban, or non-white communities. Even white middle-class women challenged this dichotomy with their volunteer and reform work. But working women posed a different kind of threat by taking to the streets at night, seeking community, pleasure, and money. They exposed the failure of intimate patriarchy as husbands, fathers, and masters were unable to control the comings and goings of the women in their lives. They challenged the idea that women were primarily domestic and maternal beings, more concerned with caretaking and home life than sociality. Women's embrace of drinking, swearing, and strolling was seen as a telltale sign that women rejected the narrow parameters of domesticity laid out for them under republicanism. Republican mothers, they were not. And this is just a breakdown of nearly 3,000 records of women who were imprisoned awaiting trial. And just to give you some sense of the categories, uh, green uh, designates property crimes. The top one is larceny. Uh, the next one is drunken disorderly, um, which was is, is uh, crimes against social order. And then orange is used to signal uh, crimes against other people. So the third largest um, category there is assault and battery and threatening. So there's a fair representation of those three different um, categories among the prisoner uh, for trial records. And again, I'm happy to talk more in greater detail um, about these in the Q&A and come back to it if people are interested. This is an image of the institution that I'm primarily talking about, but it's actually a label uh, that was uh, sewn into uh, fabric that was spun and woven in the prison um, and then sold to the general public. So what happened to these women when they were in prison? While penal reformers had grand visions for turning male criminals into skilled and productive shoemakers, carpenters, nailers, and weavers, they did not train women in midwifery, mantua making, nursing, bartending, or bookkeeping. That would be great, bartending school in the prison. I just thought it helps. Anyway, but uh, skills which could help them then make a legal living um, when they got out. Women's work in prison was restricted to laundry, cleaning, spinning, and sewing. Jobs left over for the unskilled and poor, and yet necessary for the maintenance of all prisons. The relegation of women's work to distinctly domestic, unskilled, and undervalued labor had several consequences. It aligned the disproportionately African-American and immigrant inmates with forced domestic work, reasserting their proper places as servants in the homes of others, despite the abolition of slavery and the abandonment of indentured servitude. Second, it foreclosed on the wide variety of work skills that women might have developed to succeed independently in the new republic, promoting instead their financial dependence on men, and as a result, reinscribing a heterosexual political economy and ensuring their poverty. The fact that prison was organized to reflect a heterosexual political economy is not surprising, even though it did at times undermine other institutional goals, such as having prisoners work to cover their expenses. The philosophy of presumptive heterosexuality was set during the first prison sex panic of 1787, 
when reformers discovered men and women sharing cells together at all hours of the night. The possibility for sexual intimacies between prisoners appalled reformers and was used as a sign of all that was wrong with punishment. While sexual restraint, virtue, and the stability of the nation became intertwined in the character of elite Anglo-American women in the post-revolutionary period, black and poor women continued to represent the catalyst for men's lust. Elite perceptions of the uncontrollable sexuality of black and poor women combined with the large number of women held in prison on vagrancy charges for disorderly conduct, resulted in a widely held belief that women in prison were sexually depraved. Restriction of sexual intimacies and desires then became a crucial part of reformative incarceration. What would later become a hallmark of the penitential power, a strict ordering and classification of people along lines of difference, began as an attempt to eliminate sex from prison by dividing people along lines of sexual difference, anchored in the presumption of heterosexuality. And we all know where this is going. <laughs> Sloppy at first, the process of using sex, race, age, and criminal classification to categorize and separate people was nearly perfected by the 1820s. Concerns about heterosexual sex that defined the 1780s gave way to fears and the reality of same-sex sex, or at least sodomy in the 1820s. And this is an image of one of the many reports that you will find in some prison records and then also reprinted in newspapers about the unnatural crime uh, that is apparently swept the nation's prisons in the 1820s. Generating public alarm about <coughs> sex turned out to be an effective political strategy in getting laws passed and budgets approved for the expansion of punishment. In place of real opportunities for personal transformation or even religious conversion, authorities relied on segregation and isolation as a way to establish order, setting a dangerous precedent, of course, that we are still living with to this day. As reports suggest, 80,000 people are held in solitary confinement at any given time in the modern day US. While the sex panic of the 1820s helped propel the adoption of more widespread use of solitary confinement in the US, this time the men rather than the women were to blame. Women who were long deemed to be full of lust and desire, capable of seducing any man. This narrative gets completely turned upside down by the 1830s, making women vulnerable to seduction and men who were overcome by their own sexual desires and excesses. And so in prison, men became increasingly known for directing their sexual aggression towards each other because they couldn't help it. And this becomes a naturalized version of heterosexuality. I'm gonna shift gears uh, now to talk a little bit about uh, ra uh, race and the criminalization of African-Americans and hopefully tie it together. This is the cover of my book, and what it shows you is a picture of the prison, Walnut Street Prison from the backside, and a blacksmith shop, an abandoned blacksmith shop, which was bought by a group of people under the leadership of the Reverend Richard Allen, and it's about to become the first African Methodist Episcopal Church in the country, and they're carting it a couple blocks away. 
So this image, which is a part of a very uh, popular series of Philadelphia scenes, in so many ways encapsulates the potential and the power of black community and black freedom, and then the carceral state, like lurking in the background just as this is happening. Pennsylvania passed the Gradual Abolition Act in 1780, making it the first state to pass a law abolishing slavery. The law itself famously did not free a single enslaved person already residing in the state, but it promised gradual abolition for the next generation and offered freedom to people from other states who could cross its borders. In the decades to follow, the city of Philadelphia quickly became home to the largest free black community in the country. Now this era of freedom and abolition in the North, commencing 80 years before slavery would finally meet its end nationwide, is generally deemed a bright spot in the history of American race relations. But there is another side to this story, a darker tale of our nation's founding, that confirms what now seems all too obvious. The promises of American democracy were not originally intended for African Americans because white supremacy. Understanding this period is crucial because it is then that we see the emergence not only of white supremacy, but of the very categories of white and black that would serve as its foundation. Before whiteness was codified, prison records reveal a shared experience between African American and Irish immigrant women for some time. For example, November 1794, Isabel Word accused an African-American woman, Sarah Roach, African-American women, Sarah Roach and Sylvia Gardner, for stealing or receiving two yards each of red and yellow flannel. Two yards each of red and yellow flannel. One month later, the 26-year-old Roach and the 25-year-old Gardner were found guilty on two counts of larceny in the mayor's court and sentenced to one year in prison in Walnut Street Prison for two yards of flannel. Both women were pardoned by the governor on recommendation of the visiting inspectors for their late good conduct and orderly behavior and discharged after serving eight months on condition of leaving the state. Eleanor White was one of many Irish women sentenced to Walnut Street. She was charged in May 1797 with robbing John Muir of a gold watch worth 15 pounds. She was tried and convicted in July and sentenced to six months. White, a 23-year-old woman born in Ireland, was also released on condition of leaving the state after serving four months. African-American and Irish women shared many experiences during this period. Similar movement, dislocation, economic vulnerability, severed family ties, lack of safety net, negative interactions with the English, as well as forced servitude long imposed on Irish laborers bound for passage to the colonies and increasingly imposed on African-Americans because gradual abolition required lengthy terms of servitude for former slaves and their offspring, further blurring the relationship between slave and free. Many women in their mid-20s would have finished their terms of indentured servitude and then been left to fend for themselves. And this is a chart, um, again, and this is only concerning the people who were sentenced, uh, most 90% of these people committed larceny and they were sentenced to a term of one year or more in the penitentiary. And you, most of you can't see it, but age is along the bottom line and the overwhelming majority of people are in their 20s. So the dark blue line uh, signals signifies people who are <coughs> age 20 to 24 
And then the pale, paler blue one, people who were 25 to 29. And then, of course, the next, the third uh, most significant representation is uh, teenagers. Um, so that these, so young, this is young women. The hatred directed at black and Irish women was not identical, but their similar social location in Philadelphia lasted until about the 18-teens or 1820s, at which point anti-black racism intensified and Irish Americans became more socially assimilated and privileged as white workers. Jobs at the new factories opening up along the Schuylkill River, for instance, welcomed poor Irish and Irish American women, but not black women. Records which previously designated people of European descent by their birthplace now use a deceptively simple racial classification, white, people of African descent who were once described with a wider range of terms, and this is actually a word cloud from uh, one of my data sets, um, were now all reduced to another deceptively simple term, black. Elites judged them against each other, Benjamin Rush relied on a shared assumption of black inferiority to criticize the poor from Europe, claiming that formerly enslaved people were, quote, more industrious and orderly than the lowest class of white people. So by giving credit of industry to free, black, free blacks, his aim was actually to criticize poor whites. Um, almost done here. I have a paragraph of statistics. Um, talk to you about the overrepresentation of black women. Uh, more so than black men or white women, um, and then just a, a brief conclusion. So statistically speaking, there are some important numbers for us to grasp. And this is just from one of my data sets. It runs from 1795 to 1835. It comes crashing down at the end because this institution was closed and people were going to another institution. But the blue line uh, represents people of African descent, the red line, um, people of European descent, when information about race was available, which was by no means all of the time. Um, but you can see uh, pretty consistently, um, and then more dramatically so, um, an over-representation of um, more black women than white women in prison, even though their percentage of the population was like minuscule at the time. Black women were also represented in greater numbers in the prison population than black men. In 1800, for example, um, African Americans made up 30% of the overall prison population, whereas African American women made up 45% of the women. African Americans <coughs> were the majority of inmates overall by 1835 when Walnut Street closed, but black women comprised the majority of women as early as 1803, and then consistently for years afterwards. So on the other hand, what I'm saying is, white men continued to outnumber black men in prison, often by a two to one margin. For example, in 1818, there were 176 white men to 71 black men. In 1821, 175 white men to 73 black men. While black men were still incarcerated disproportionately to their percentage of the population, they remained a fraction of the overall prison population throughout the early decades of the 19th century. To those of us familiar with the current statistics about black men and incarceration, this seems like good news, but it is misleading, suggesting that the system did not excessively target black people during the period. 
And the real picture is harder to see until you look at white women. Dominant attitudes about white women needing protection from society's evils created a culture of disbelief when white women were accused of wrongdoing. This ideology could protect them from being accused in the first place, increase their chances of being found innocent, or increase the likelihood that they would receive a pardon. To conclude, criminalization did not begin when Jim Crow ended, and prisons did not replace Southern slavery during Reconstruction. Rather, slavery itself in the early Republic criminalized free African Americans who insisted on their own humanity and sought to fully claim their freedom. And black women bore the brunt of this stigma. Furthermore, white men charged with serious crimes that carried a sentence of one year or more outnumbered all other groups in state penitentiaries throughout the North during this period because they committed so many crimes and they were also the chief target of reformative incarceration. They needed to be locked up so that they could be transformed into sensitive, productive, law-abiding citizens. What remained, however, was a simple fact. The white supremacist carceral state protected white women, especially those who conformed to white middle-class notions of domesticity and submission by taking their place as wives and mothers within the heterosexual political economy. By accepting white patriarchal authority, they could expect protection from economic hardship and social unrest, though nothing could shield them from the abuse of the patriarch himself. Thank you. We have plenty of time for a Q&A. Question, Alex? Yeah, um, I was wondering, you shared like a little clip from the newspaper about mm -hmm. public concerns about um, penitentiaries, and I was just wondering like, how prominent were um, criminal reform conversations in the community? Like, was it kind of relegated to a small group of people, or was it like commonly discussed? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that I know that answer. Um, you know, at this moment, I, you know, I kind of, even though it's not the Renaissance, I think of this group of, I think of them as Renaissance men, right? Because they were like doctors and lawyers and, you know, they just, but they were like, they had their hands in everything. So, you know, the body of records that we have are from this, predominantly this group of elite white men who are like sitting literally in each other's li living room, figuring out like, well, what kind of country do we want this to be? Okay, well, how, you know, what kind of system should we set up here? What kind of system should we set up there? Um, and, you know, maybe in the 18, and they're, they're like, you know, like Benjamin Rush's ideas, like, literally get passed into law. Like, this just, like, it's just there for at least a time, largely on the same page. And these ideas get passed into law. And then by the eight, and, and these include um, maybe the other most visible group of people, and there's some overlap, are like Quakers. Right, so um, Quaker abolitionists, uh, Quakers who had, you know, started their work, um, you know, before the revolution, like targeting, like trying to figure out how to alleviate human suffering in the prison and outside the prison. Um, so, you know, religious reform work and then political elites. Um, and, you know, it's there. And then I think by the 1810s, a lot of the more, you know, liberals and the reformers like get really pushed out of local government 
And that's when we sort of have like more competing um, agendas, like about what's going to happen. So then these people who were insider, you know, insiders who created this suddenly become like an oppositional antagonistic force um, around the 1810s. But it's still like a pretty small group of people, as far as I can tell. Um, thank you so much for such a provocative and necessary and timely talk. Is it possible to go back to the um, the charges where sure. larceny was? In? I was so fascinated by that, um, and this could be very much a kind of sorry, <laughs> 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 trippy. Can I? Um, <laughs> sorry. Thank you. So one of the things that I was so struck by is how relatively slim the charges for vagrancy are. Um, and I think this could be a sort of post. Um, That's because of the data set. Oh, OK. Meaning? So vagrancy charges come in under a different docket. OK, OK. So this is the prisoner for, prisoner for trial record. The vagrancy, so there's like three main like categories of processing uh, your time. So the vagrancy docket. I don't have represented here. Okay. That's, I think, the largest. I may have to look at the table in my book. Um, but that's very significant. And that's just like 30 days for a million different things in and out. Well, then, to, to th that kind of goes to the mm -hmm. second point of the question, then, which I'm really fascinated by. I also then wonder how vagrancy gets reimagined post 1860s um, as another form of, of free labor. So, I mean, where um, where in this earlier period, mm. labor is, is kind of, you, you read it here as a form of, of rehabilitation, of mm. reform, mm -hmm. so it becomes kind of part of the penitentiary, mm -hmm. as opposed to just raiding a neighborhood or a bar or someplace to, and filing people under vagrancy charges to then put them to build roads or build them. Um, and I, I wonder to what extent maybe that's one of the kind of changes that we see happen, right, in, in this kind of period that you, that you frame here, that, that um, labor becomes a motive in, in a different way, um, in a way that we don't see it in your period. So that's a southern story. Right. I don't think it's a northern story. Right. Um, and I think it does. It def. It doesn't work. Okay, let me think. And so, so it definitely doesn't work in Pennsylvania because the manufactories are a disaster. Like they're failed. So there's no. Um, institutional incentive to like fill the prison with more workers. I think it's a different story in New York in certain places and this, the southern landscape after the war is like that's the story, right? So the, oh we need people to literally like do the work that enslaved people did before and like tend to the, ar the agricultural needs of the region or build a road that's round people up. Yeah. Um, so there's, uh, it's, uh, it's, in, it's, it's kind of a, a serious gap in the scholarship that we, we have so much information about that in the South during this mm -hmm. crucial period, but not necessarily comparable information about what, what's happening in the North at the same time. Right, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. This is so fascinating. Yeah. And over here. Yeah, uh, I was just wondering if you could talk a little more about the, uh, the word cloud name. Uh, I'd be curious to like, know like, more about yeah. Yeah. So I should. I had another slide, but I didn't. I don't have it in here to clarify for you. 
um, the way that prison records are, which is, you know, gets to your point as well, which is that you're either uh, in the vagrancy docket, uh, you're in the prisoner for trial docket, which has a wide range of people, and you could be transferred from the prisoner for trial docket then to the prison sentence docket if you're convicted to serve time. Um, but a lot of the prisoner for people who are in, just as an aside, and then I will go to that, this is like kind of the closest thing we have to some of the contemporary um, issues like around just people who are just like arrested and then imprisoned indefinitely awaiting trial because they can't afford bail or because it's just like the system is like so clogged up that people just who have not been found guilty of anything just like end up in prison for a very long time. So this is like, you know, historic antecedent to that phenomenon. And particularly because certain crimes, especially like, so larceny, people charged with larceny, if they get found guilty, they're going into the prison center docket, they're serving a year or more. Uh, the red lines, drunk and disorderly, there, there's a lot of overlap there with vagrancy. So those people could just be in prison for 30 days and then released. Um, but the orange, most of the crimes against people, physical assault, aside from murder um, or abduction, they're punishable by a fine. They're not even like imprisonable offenses. So the fact that so many people get caught up, you know, waiting in prison, um, often because they can't afford to pay the finer fee. So they do end up kind of a de facto imprisonment because they don't have enough money. Um, but uh, to answer your question, if I can, I think it was, close your eyes, everybody. <laughs> uh, oh, did I just go the wrong way? Shoot. Oh my God, I literally went the wrong way. Okay, close your eyes again. So, oh. okay there, okay. So I have to admit that I did this a while ago but um, the prison sentence docket is the only record that has um, cons more consistent uh, demographic information, including place of birth, race, sometimes occupation. And that's partly because so th those people are accused of more serious crimes. So that means we don't have this kind of information from the vagrancy docket or the prisoner for trial docket, although there is, are at least you know, maybe a 10 to 20% overlap move through so I can kind of track some of these people um, but this is what I came up with everything except so all of the um, so the size of the word is representative of the number of occurrences in my data set but the only thing that's not entirely authentic is my use of the words Irish and English so all of the other words um, were in the records themselves. But to signal Irish people, it would, say, you, it would just say born in Ireland and born in England. And so I just made an extra column and called them Irish or English like for some kind of like consistency so that we could kind of uh, look at patterns. Um, but the other terms um, were in the record. Is that? Yeah. That okay. I mean, I mean I, that was like, there's so many, you could spend a week, right, yeah. just talking with people and trying to figure out how to make those <coughs> decisions. 
um, the data. So I do have, I mean, I am obsessed with the data. There was like a long time where I was just so obsessed with, you know, you know, because there's so much misspelling built into the system as well and figuring out. People would deliberately lie about, change their names all the time, right? It's like before, you know, documentation. Um, so, and, and then, so, but sometimes they would know if the same clerk was working when that person came through, it would be like, Mary, formerly known as Eleanor, also Susan. You know, they would try to like keep track of their aliases. Um, so it's definitely like, as one of my friends said when I was working with this day, like these, these women want to evade like structures, right? They're trying to evade the carceral state. They're trying to evade, hit, like, you know, I mean, they're just like, they're wanting to not, um, uh, not be known in many ways. So um, your idea, first, thank you for a fantastic and informative talk. Um, so on your idea that uh, gradual emancipation um, kind of came with this um, clause of lengthier uh, um, terms of servitude, uh, was that universal everywhere in sort of the early states? Or? God, I just don't know off the top of my head. You know, but it was like really... It's like such a tarnished legacy for Pennsylvania because Quake, P Pennsylvania had such an active, organized, visible, interracial, radical abolition movement before the revolution. And the fact that they, you know, kind of got this law in the books right away. And then by the time other states start, you know, passing their laws and other movements, it's like Pennsylvania seems like conservative and racist. Like, you know, the restrictions were so great and it was just like so delayed. Um, yeah. The uh, felony record now, yeah. is there a, uh, something comparable to the past? Um, and of course, they didn't have electronic records, so yeah. they wouldn't necessarily follow someone yeah. if, if they moved. And uh, is, is there a correlation with reform now, like the um, penitentiary system now in incarceration? Yeah. As a reform institution, are they trying to make it something as a reform? And if they, if they are, how does a felony record yeah. Well, so, you know, the record keeping was just, you know, so minimal and chaotic. So you could literally be imprisoned in one county in Pennsylvania and then a year later in another and they would have no idea. Right. Unless um, if you were, you know, they could through the newspapers. Right. If you're in a lot of times if you were charged with something serious enough then the newspapers which were just like multiplying exponentially at this time in the mid-atlantic and new england right so um could capture people's names and charges so i'm just trying to piece it through like how people could be found out but technically no like there is like not communication across state lines, you know, across, even across county lines, across state lines, um, there were, and people changed their names, and, you know, documentation was unreliable, so there were so many, so there was not, you know, when we talk about the carceral web, and the carceral state, and all these, you know, different, you know, things that have marked, like, 20th century life, um, there's just not the knowledge, data, infrastructure, and even policing, like, there's just hardly any policing, you know, there's, so there's just not the system yet, to kind of do those things that we're used to. Um, the reform question, okay. 
it's so you know when I first started reading these records um, which are like so everything written about prison reform is written by these elite white Protestant Quakers men especially all through my period there's like no women aren't allowed women aren't involved so till the 1840s and you know, they're infused by the Enlightenment, they're infused by political liberalism. Like, in many regards, they seem reasonable. Like, if you share those sentiments, and I'm, you know, anyway. So, I had a great challenge trying to figure out, I'm like, I know this is just one side of the story, and I know the legacy of this is mass incarceration. So, like, how can, and that was kind of what led me to say, well, I'm going to do a close Social, I'm going to do this like, you know, laborious social history of the records themselves to try to find just some evidence about these, the prisoners' lives, even in tiny fragments, so that I could say it's they're, they're imprisoning and they're harming and they're controlling somebody, right? This, it's not just like um, this, what sounds great, okay, we're not going to beat people anymore. We're going to give them blankets and cookies so that they're more comfortable when they're in prison. Like, okay, so, so, um, you know, so this is a critique of liberalism and reform because one of the things that I feel pretty clear about having done all this work is that in many ways there was something about the softening of punishment and the logic of it that made it just like more palatable right so we think okay and that that's one of the things that allowed it to expand and become what it has um, and at the same time now today and, and I feel that I felt this way for a week I feel like why did I write this book like, this isn't the problem. Like, like, it's been really easy for us on the left to criticize liberalism for all of its, like, shortcomings, right? I don't know. I, I'm just of two minds. You know, I feel like, so on the one hand, the election signals, okay, now maybe we can really get it together. And organized to do like some real overhaul to like address like real structural injustice and given, <sighs> given um, the comparison when there was one voice in the past say uh, Quaker white men mm -hmm. making decisions so many voices now mm -hmm. uh, are heard and policies are made mm -hmm. by so many different people what on earth is going wrong with uh, mm -hmm. incarceration well, I think because it's all still ankled in, like, political liberalism. You know, I mean, I, I do, like, believe that. And, you know, all these different... And the other thing that I do feel, like, is really important, and this is the part of me that's, like, an intersectional social historian, is, like, you have to look at the specificity. Like, people are targeted and incarcerated in all different ways. And it's, like, you can't just be, like, okay, this and this. It's just, like, no. Black women are targeted this way. White women are targeted this way. Like immigrant people are targeted this way. People who do have gay sex are targeted this way. Like da 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 da. And then when you put it all together, it's like, oh, okay, there's a pattern and there's a mass, um, and it shifts. Can we see a way out here? So, 
Yeah, us. Well, yes, uh, but um, because you're, you're bringing up something that I find very interesting when you're saying it's, it became so excessive. Uh, acceptable. Acceptable. Because it's reform. Yeah. It's, so, uh, so it should, should we look at it as maybe unacceptable? Because we, because, like, I'm, yes, it's unacceptable, right? right? I mean, it doesn't. Um, like I would say, you know, when I started this project, like I had, didn't even know what prison abolition was and I wasn't really interested as a historian. And now that I've been with these records for 15 years and I study reform, like I've, how many thousands of pages have I read about reforms all throughout the, okay, well, okay, we see there's this grave injustice. Uh, I have an essay coming out. Like, you know, this woman was like literally beaten, raped, and impregnated, and then killed in New York City State Penitentiary in 1826. There's a huge scandal. It's in the newspaper. It's just like now. It's in the newspaper. Everybody's debating. We're going to fix it. What happens? The carceral state expands. Okay, there's another crisis. What happens? Oh, the people who are at the front lines, often police and guards, never held responsible. The answer is more money to create more space for more services or a bigger, stronger system. So now I would say, yeah, the whole thing doesn't work. And like, how do we get there? Do we decarcerate? How do we get to abolition? But it's so clear if we are gonna try to have a system that's just in our democracy, like tinkering, tinkering is nothing. Tinkering is, makes us feel better, Yeah. you know? well, I did something, and now it's just, like, a little better. Right. And I feel like that's what I, that's what I kind of look to my reformers saying, yeah, you tinkered, and you made it a little better, and you felt, they, felt be- they felt great about themselves. And they said, like, <laughs> here's the thing. Even if this doesn't work, we are going to be, there's, like, they literally, Benjamin Rush actually literally says this, so it's, like, my, it's one of my prize quotes, right? I'm like, you said that for me. Thank you. Because he says, even if this doesn't work out, it's going to make us better men. Mm. So. I have a comment over here. I just have a final question. Uh, if possible, could you talk a little bit about resistance in these things? Yeah, so, you know, there's definitely more resistance documented among the men than among the women. And I, and I mean, like, literally, you know, people have fi- access to fire because it's used for heat. So there's, like, <coughs> fires in prisons. You know, people break their tools. Um, the women tended to do that less. And, you know, I think uh, my argument is, in part, it just, like, didn't serve them. Like, women could, in some ways, resist by submission and manipulating the inspectors who would visit them into saying, oh, well, she, you know, because there was definitely some reformers and inspectors that would visit to decide whether or not to give you an early pardon. And women of all races and ethnicities who were deemed to be orderly and submissive um, were more likely to get pardons. So I definitely, you know, see that as like one example of resistance. Um, You know, I also argue that you know, it, people run, people run away and like fight with their masters and mistresses like all the time during this period. Um, 
and they know there's like a decent chance that they're going to get caught and they're going to get thrown in prison. But for some people, that's like a, it's a risk worth taking, number one. And it's potentially a better outcome than like the hell they're living under in right. slavery, right? So in prison, you're in community. In prison, um, you have shared experiences. You have a chance to get out and try it again. So I, my take on it is definitely, um, it's a porous space at this time. And like literally, that's why I show you the map because um, like prisoners could like yell out onto the street, like there were windows and they could like yell at people passing by um, and ask for, you know, and ask for things. And so it's, it's, not, it's not yet, you know, what will happen in the 1830s with these like great fortresses um, that are like isolated and walled off from society. Any final question? We can have one more. Should we let our speaker pause the bus? <laughs> Let's thank Jen for a 